Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Joachim Algayer, a professor for communication and digital society at the Department of Nutritional, Food and Consumer Sciences of Fulda University of Applied Sciences in Germany. Previously, he worked at RWTH Aachen University, Alpen Adria Universität Klagenfurt, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Helmholtz Research Center Jülich, the University of Vienna, and the Open University. In 2015, he had been elected as a member of the Global Young Academy. His research interests concern communication and cooperation in the digital society, social media, online video, science, and technology communication and disinformation and conspiracy theories in online media. I welcome Joachim Algayer to Savage Minds. I have become uh, very interested in how our society has been affected by social media, especially over the past decade with the rise in popularity of platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Now we've gone over to TikTok, Instagram. And I wanted to begin our discussion with your 2019 research paper, Science and Environmental Communications on YouTube, where you analyze the content of a randomized sample of 200 YouTube videos related to climate change, where you found that a majority of the videos either denied the existence of climate change, that it was caused by human input, or that claimed that climate change was a conspiracy. You concluded that the videos peddling the conspiracy theories received the highest number of views, while those spreading these conspiracy theories used terms like geoengineering to make it seem as if their claims had a scientific basis in reality, when in fact they did not. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about this in terms of maybe some of the more recent social events that have occurred as well. Okay, well, maybe I start from, from my personal interest in this research that was back then, I started it really early in around 2015 or so, and I noticed back then that uh, especially YouTube has become more and more popular also as a search engine. So people really use it as a, yeah, the second most popular search engine after Google basically. So they really use it as a knowledge base if they want to know something and basically type in for instance a term or something uh, into the YouTube interface and basically, yeah, they try to get more knowledge of what is happening. And I was, I started, I got uh, interested in this kind of question when I was looking for information before this research on cancer, for instance. And back then I noticed that if you typed in a, a search term like uh, chemotherapy or something like this, you did not find scientifically accurate information on what this actually is, but you found a lot of um, very distorted information for you know ideological information saying that uh, this should not be used. It's all a conspiracy by the uh, pharmaceutical industry or the people claiming cancer does not even exist and uh, sometimes out of commercial motives they just wanted to sell this some kind of vitamin pills basically something like this and then i thought okay it's it's difficult to basically get a yeah correct view if you use this as a you know entry <laughs> or basically as a knowledge base so i thought but it's not it was not very easy to do a study on this but it was 
I mean, the climate change issue already got traction. And fortunately, there were the IPCC reports around and they served as something like the scientific consensus on the issue. So, so I had something to compare the information with saying, this is what the scientists are saying. And now I'm interested in the information that I find when I use uh, YouTube as a, as a starting point. And uh, one thing was that back then in these IPCC reports, it was the first time, I think, I'm not so sure anymore, but I think it was the first time when they mentioned climate or geoengineering as a something that might be uh, a technology that we might use because it already got clear that we yeah that the emission targets will probably be missed and this is why i was i heard already from the these uh, communities working scientifically on that issue that there was this conspiracy going on and basically what i wanted to do was um comparing the information that, that i found on youtube using uh specific anonymization tools like Tor uh, to you know get out of my own filter bubble to use the, the profiles of different people to see not only my, my own results but also the results of other people. And the main result is basically that these uh, the scientific terms have been hijacked or captured by conspiracy movements and the effect was that if you were looking for scientific terms, you did not find any scientific information, but you immediately found conspiracy theory videos. And I think this was a strategic, um, yeah, basically a strategic endeavor to distort the, the public discussion on this issue right from the start. And uh, of course, this is highly problematic and uh, potentially this, they saw that basically there were the results show that they have been uh, incredibly successful in doing that because I, they reached a lot of people. Many, many people actually watched that. Almost basically, the, these conspiracy videos have been watched even more than the ones from the scientists. So the, the, the chance that you're actually back then have been exposed to extremely wrongful information on these issues when you used YouTube as an information source was extremely high. So, but after this, I mean, then the, we did a press release and so on and various um, journalists and so on picked this up. And eventually this paper, I think also reached YouTube and I think they reacted to this paper because I, you know, tried again and again, I tried to replicate these results. And after a little while, no conspiracy videos showed up anymore when you typed in geoengineering and climate engineering. And this is basically my motivation for doing this kind of research, I think, because if you have, you know, a, a databases or some evidence, uh, this might actually reach YouTube and they might eventually change something. Maybe not. But in that case, that was a various journalists approached YouTube. And this is why they might have seen the need to react to that. Of course, now the, uh, the situation got far more difficult in the COVID-19 times because more and more people realize that YouTube is, has become an even more important information source. And this was reflected that even an extremely traditional and established journal like the British Medical Journal, you know, uh, 
20, very high impact factor, very traditional journal. Even they recommended in a feature that was published in, I think, spring last year that YouTube has become one of the weapons of choice for educating the, the, um, the public about the biomedical view on COVID-19, which I found really remarkable because one year ago or one year earlier, this would not have been possible that the traditional journal like this writes about YouTube before this, everybody thought, you know, this is just something basically that the kids use for entertainment or something like that. That's my impression. And of course, then later on, I was, uh, yeah, basically asked to do another study for basically media regulation authorities in Germany. And they wanted to know what happens when we, I did this with some, some people who have an expertise in data science. I'm more of a traditional, if you want, social scientist, communication scholar, person doing mainly qualitative research. However, I teamed up with these guys and they're re really using, you know, large scale data science approaches. And so we teamed up and, and shared our resources. And this is when we looked at the question, what type of information comes up when you looked at climate uh, change back then, when you looked at uh, the COVID-19 issue and when you looked at migration issues, you know, the, and the, the, the authorities, they wanted to know what a YouTube algorithm recommends. This was the main question that was driving them. Of course, they had something in mind with uh, whether it need to be regulated or not, or whether it even can be regulated. And so what we found was, and other scholars and also colleagues also found is that there are actually two different algorithms in, in YouTube. And it makes a huge difference if you use it as a search engine. Or if you just start watching a video about something and you follow the up next recommendations on the right hand side of, of YouTube, this brings you to a completely different uh, corner of YouTube because it seems that this is the, the, the main way how most YouTube users actually navigate through YouTube. And it's not so widely, well, of course, it's also used as a, um, as a search engine, basically. But once they have clicked on one video, it is, I think, more likely that they follow the recommendations next, you know, that come up immediately next to the, to the video. And it's quite remarkable that, for instance, in our sample, it might have changed because the uh, YouTube algorithm changes all the time. So it's very, uh, it's always just snapshots in time that you can do because you don't know if the algorithm is still the same having done uh, having worked on a sample that was drawn a year ago or half a year ago so and uh, the remarkable thing was when you used the search bar from youtube you have been directed to mainly you know journalistically approved information or in the german case from the public sector media something like this which is which we would say is more or less high uh, high quality standard journalism points of view. So the information situation is rather good. And if you follow the, um, the personal recommendations, it really depends on your search histories and, and uh, also a little bit on the topic. But uh, it is quite likely that you will be moved or it is possible that you will be moved to entirely different corners, also in conspiracy bubbles, something like this. So, so much as a basis maybe for the starting point. 
in your study on science and environment communication on YouTube, you look at how language is used to promote misinformation, such as the term geoengineering. What can scientists working in these fields do to reclaim the language that the conspiracy theorists use to promote their fake science? That's a good question. I think, first of all, they need to get out of their own bubbles and see what is basically circulating in the public space. If they totally ignore what is happening in on places like or in sites like YouTube, maybe also now even on in sites like uh, TikTok, for instance, uh, yeah, they will simply miss what the public is actually finding, what kind of information and what kind of um, perceptions they have about their own research terms. So it is it is possible that these terms have been captured or hijacked by all kinds of movements. So if the scientists themselves are not speaking about their own issues, somebody else will. This is maybe basic observation. I'm not saying that they all need to engage themselves on social media channels, but maybe they need to forge alliances with people like people who know how to use these different channels, people like, uh, you know, I would even say you have something like science influencers in a certain regard, at least on, on YouTube, you have professional science YouTubers who reach a huge amount of people these days, sometimes have, a, some of them have millions and millions of subscribers. And you see from the few counts that many million people actually watch these videos. So this is one way because once, you know, their terms have been empty or their fuels have been amplified in, with the help of, of people like that, uh, then the, also the algorithms will, will need to react and at some point need to recommend these videos when you're looking for this term. This is one of the issues. But I mean, first, the starting point, really, the, the uh, basic idea is that they need to accept that it is of relevance what is happening on these social networks. And I think possibly we might not be even there yet because in the COVID-19 situation, of course, people have realized now, okay, social media are really powerful and sort of conspiracy and, and uh, disinformation and misinformation going on. But this actually also affects all kinds of different issues. You know, So if, if you're a researcher and if you're in a research community, these communities should at least check from time to time, just typing in their, their main key issues, I think, in or just search for it on sites like, like YouTube or maybe even TikTok to see what people are actually talking about, you know, what, what information is brought up by the algorithms. Uh, and if they're happy with that, maybe there's no need to, to react to that and they can just go on with their daily business. But if not, which can easily happen in many cases, also in social scientific or, or humanities circles. I think this is really important to check from time to time also what kind of discussions are happening. Well, you worked recently on an analysis of disinformation videos yeah. that you published with uh, Media Policy Lab, Desinformation aus Empfehlung. Could mm -hmm. you speak a bit about that? Okay, basically. What, what we did, or my job was, I work in a, in a little team with some colleagues at RWTH University. 
And we were basically extracting some of the disinformation videos that we found uh, when we were looking for these three topics that I mentioned, climate change, COVID-19, and migration. And uh, we basically used, we did an in-depth analysis on trying to check if there are, what are the differences and what are the similarities in this disinformation videos. Of course, this was a really small sample of uh, videos, but nonetheless, some interesting things came up. Well, the first thing was you find a huge variety of, you know, formats, uh, the tone of the video, some present themselves as uh, almost documentary style or professional journalism or something very serious, but you also find really joyful and, and humorous, entertaining things, which were also peddling disinformation about different issues. You find um, videos talking to different target audiences, really professionally done videos, but also extremely amateurish videos produced very cheaply. You find very long videos, you find very short videos. So basically it's very difficult to say uh, there is a common ground. There's an extremely different type of videos. And also, of course, depending on the topic, they, they ventured in all kinds of directions. However, where they came together or where there was a huge uh, commonality or similarity basically was in the stereotypes and basically in the images of the enemies that they created. Because in most of the videos, they clearly addressed uh, somebody who is responsible for something that goes wrong. That is mainly the government and uh, federal politicians in Germany. Second, they mostly attack the, the media in general, which is uh, the equivalent of, I don't know, Trump's fake, fake media kind of stuff in German would be Lügenpresse or, or something like that. And the third group of enemies is actually scientists and scientifically working organizations like the IPCC, WHO, or in Germany, the Robert Koch Institute, which is a federal uh, public health body, uh, you know, very influential in, in the Corona policies in Germany and so on. These players have been attacked. And of course, in the Corona, um, coronavirus crisis, a new common enemy came up and that was, for some reason, is always Bill Gates. And this has also been confirmed in, uh, yeah, basically surveys done worldwide that apparently, according to the surveys, almost half of, of the population worldwide now thinks that Bill Gates is somehow using vaccination campaigns to somehow damage or, or, or do harm on the population, which is yeah, it's quite dramatic. And that was uh, also reflected in the sample in our video, actually. Are you noticing that there is a correlation between those who are more prone to believe conspiracy theories and certain types of political leanings or certain types of personality makeups? It's, this is difficult to say. I mean, this is some reception issue. And as we just um, were analyzing content, it's very hard to, to, to speak uh, about how people perceive this kind of stuff. Nonetheless, it was, I, I think there is a quite clear indication 
that most of the of these videos, at least in our sample, come came from the political right. Yeah, you saw it, for instance, in the type of the T-shirts that some of the video hosts were wearing because they had some of the the logos of some right-wing uh, formations, which were actually almost so uh, far off right that they're uh, pretty much illegal in Germany and so on. So you see, at least in some cases, clearly where you're coming from. Then you have players like Russia Today. Their channel has been basically blocked now in Germany because um, yeah, they were basically attacked from YouTube for peddling Corona mis misinformation, disinformation actually about the coronavirus. Um, yeah, but I think the, the main trend that you could see that it was much of the disinformation in these three cases came from the political right. And uh, yeah, you saw also in some cases the connections between the people uh, that were doing these videos. They're referring to each other and so on. So there's quite a, a strong, I think, international network. Uh, some of the discovered courses have just been translated to the German situation, but they were originating, especially from the US context, I think. So things that you saw in US-based videos about how they were attacking their government and so on, they have been moved to the German context later on, and that's also something that we found in the sample of the study. You mentioned when you go to YouTube, we've all done this, I think, mm -hmm. you go and watch a video and next thing you know, it's four hours later and you're looking at something you never thought. And mm -hmm. you're I was watching people painting ceramics, the most insane thing. It mm -hmm. was boring. It was banal. What is making me do this aside from boredom? Uh, what is making me go to those weird videos? Because I started off watching a, an interview with Orson Welles and somehow ended up in the most bizarre video space. It does YouTube do this on purpose with that right hand panel to pull us in? Yeah, I mean, the, the job of YouTube is basically, or the job of the algorithm, and especially the up next, the recommendation algorithm, is basically to keep you on the platform because uh, you are the target of YouTube. They want to basically get data from you, your behavioral data. This is some of their business model that they can sell this information to people who want to, you know, publish ads and stuff like that. But obviously the the motivation on the one hand is commercial to make money with this. And on the other hand is to, yeah, basically it's a little bit like, maybe that's an ex, extreme way of putting it, but they want to make you dependent that you basically stick with them and, and uh, that you're not, they basically want to catch your attention as long as possible and keep you on the platform. And this is why some of the people researching this kind of, stuff said this is where all these radicalization uh, well maybe not the, the whole bubbles but back in the days it seemed to be the idea that the videos became always a little bit more extreme you started with something you know like sports and you want to know something about how to run and you end up watching some extreme ultra marathons where people are almost <laughs> killing themselves because they just run through deserts or something and this also was of course claimed from, from a political point of view that you start with something moderate and you end up in really extreme corners because the day apparently it seemed that the algorithm learned that this is one way how to catch your attention. I think it doesn't, that was maybe some years ago. 
it changed a little bit. They have now diversified this. It, at least this is my impression from, from following what I learned in, in this study. They offer you now different things. So sometimes they, they give you something completely different. And of course, the, the algorithm can take into account at what time of the evening are watching. Are you watching at a really late time? Is the start of the day? What might fit, fit better in your schedule? What has it learned about what you have been doing in the past before? Did you maybe from time to time also this, for instance, what I'm doing, you use it to, to uh, listen to music and suddenly you want to learn about something and suddenly a music video pops up. And this is because the algorithm shows you it has learned something about you and now wants to offer you something. Maybe you need a distraction. Maybe you want to listen to a song now. And I think this is because it, it, it's almost organic in a certain way, it learns about your behavior and just tries to get you with all the means it can it, it has so and this is yeah if if it thinks so apparently uh, maybe you're tired after watching a couple of uh, discussions or academic things now maybe they it gives you a video about painting ceramics to distract you a little bit that relax you <laughs> maybe this is how it works so well you know there are these really crazy videos now on youtube yeah. It is ridiculous. I, I can't even believe I fall for them time after time. Yeah. They're fake how-to videos where you think you're going to watch someone break up a vase and miraculously restore it, mm. but they don't. And it's not even those videos where they break it up and then place it in cement outside their, their porch. No, it's a hoax. At the end, you're left with something that never worked in the first place. Or the other day, I saw some crazy video of people pouring paint on a woman's head. It, it was nothing. So you're watching something that is actually not practical or helpful or real. And it falls into this netherworld of absurd in the way of Dadaism was absurd, but less artistic in value. I wonder why then where you have these media platforms that we can go to for instruction. I've often learned how to do things from online videos or PDFs. And then you have these waste time fields of things that amount to nothing. Recipes, mm -hmm. which I find very annoying. I'm not, a, I love cooking. I hate video recipes because instead of taking half an hour, you could just write it out. And people who know how to cook, we just need to see three eggs. Like recently, I just got a device to make spätzle, and I've never made spätzle. So I thought, okay, so I look for a recipe and I find only videos. I don't want to see a video. I just want to read the words. So you have all these platform preferences. But then when we get down to actual facts, science over COVID or what happened around the Trump era, which was Russiagate. And I want to ask you about this a bit, because what I find interesting, and we saw this last year in the run-up to the American election as well, we saw platforms like Facebook and Twitter taking to very strong measures to extricating any kind of what they called fake news. Meanwhile, over the past year, Twitter has actually taken down not fake news and called it fake news over coronavirus, for instance. Just the other day, El Selvier took down another study over the effects of the vaccine on myocarditis on the heart. And then you have Russiagate, which was propounded by major media 
still is if you tune into certain American neoliberal channels like NBC, MSNBC and CNN are perhaps the greatest at this. So we're getting crazy anti-science, anti-truth propaganda that is allowed on major media platforms, allowed on YouTube. YouTube will not take down anyone who talks about Russiagate. You still have all the Hillary videos up there, Russiagate. So it seems to me that social media is in a way beholden to major media in terms of that thermometer temperature taking, because what major media decides is news or not is not news, even if it's wrong and it has been wrong, especially since COVID. Then social media sort of has to fall into line to make sure that there's no misinformation about Dr. Fauci yet everyone is getting it wrong. And there's so many examples to pull from, but more recently there've been journalists writing about the fact that the American Institutes of Science, there's two different ones that had money that were put into the Wuhan laboratory, which some people theorize, scientists theorize, might've been responsible for the virus itself. Now, these are obvious hypotheses. Nothing yet has been proven. But is it not the point of science and scientific debate to have hypotheses out there that we can reasonably discuss without anyone coming out like Jack Dorsey and saying that's fake news or that's not really science? Because we're putting then the scientific beholding or the the wand, as it were, that is to be waved over what is or what is not science in the hands of mass media or social media oligarchs, if you follow what I'm saying. Of course, there were many, many issues now in, in your statement and in, in your question. I mean, just in general, I have to say for me, you know, working on the situation in, in Germany, and I have actually moved now direction a little bit and working on, on something else. And it's interesting because you, you um, picked already the example of, of food and cooking, because this, this is the type of thing that I'm interested in right now, because it's such an... Um, essential issue that every that affects the life of every person what you eat how you eat and also what kind of information do you get and i just wanted to mention that uh, apparently when you look at the main uh, group of users of, of social media and so on nobody reads cooking books anymore on texts it's this uh, it used to be an important genre you know the, the 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 recipe book or something like that maybe with a picture or two but this information has become extremely visualized and young people apparently they got all their recipes from or their cooking instructions from images and particularly videos so they don't read text anymore so th this is already a, an uh, interesting observation because i personally would also first read the recipe, looking at what are the ingredients and so on. And then, yeah, so th this is an, an interesting observation. Uh, then the other thing that you mentioned before with looking at these videos, which have no value at all, I think that the, uh, it is even worse when you, because I also participated in a study on science on TikTok, for mm -hmm. instance, and TikTok is an even more fast lived. Right. Uh, channel if you want is ex extremely hectic extremely fast extremely colorful ex extremely many you know type of boom effects and so on very short videos and it's 
I also have to admit, because I had to watch many of these videos, and it's extremely addictive. And these videos are just seconds long, or 30 seconds, or something like this. And you think, okay, I watch a couple of them, and then it's good. And suddenly you realize you watch them for hours and hours, because you don't even know uh, notice how time passes. And you just see visual things happening without any additional value. And I think the, <laughs> this is speculation, of course, but maybe this is a, something that the algorithms found out about us, that this is a way of forced meditation on how they can move us into a state where we just basically pray, almost brainlessly following, saying, okay, give me more, more visual input <laughs> without anything to think about. This is some kind of a forced meditation already. Mm -hmm. This is sometimes I got a little bit the feeling, yeah, especially... You to observe yourself watching something which might not be even extremely uh, interesting to you, but you nonetheless you keep go you keep going on watching this kind of stuff, and this is also what some of the colleagues reported. You know, all um, experienced academics and so on, and they fall like you know ordinary people like everybody else fall for this kind of stuff. And I, I found this also extremely. Uh, and, and we all think we are media literate and so on. And just think about how young kids act with react to this kind of stuff. Of course, they're completely hooked by these things. And it's no wonder that uh, kids with mobile phones now spend hours and hours and hours being online. The idea of being offline now is, is completely exotic to them. It's almost impossible so uh, which you know, this is something i find extremely interesting and i often compare also things like netflix and so on it, it has become a little bit of a, a digital drug basically you know you hook the people on it and then you do this whole thing and you get the whole series the whole uh, block of, of videos you can binge watch yourself binge watch yourself to to death almost for hours and hours and hours and you don't you get immediate uh, gratification you can just spend your whole weekend watching one, one thing in, in one go and this this is something i find quite interesting and also a little bit worrying actually this is this forced digital escapism if you want well during lockdown a lot of people appreciated it although even before lockdown, I have friends who work in mental health and when they get a patient who starts to tell them about a new boyfriend or girlfriend, they now, as a matter of form, stop that person early on and they say, have you ever met this person in real life? They actually have to do that because it is phenomenal how many people are claiming to have relationships with humans they have never met and this is really shocking to me you know yeah yeah and this was ex extremely an extremely important issue of course and and uh, it got much worse of course uh, in in the lockdown situations of course people wanted to have kind of contacts and uh, all kinds of actors i think try to make use of this pretending to be I think also using bots and so on, that people think that they're actually interacting with somebody and just uh, interacting with a bot, for instance. So in some, many cases, or also with online dating and so on, you don't really know, you, how can you be sure that you're 
really uh, interact with the person that you think you're interacting with or even with a person at all. So it might be the case that some person on the other hand has 20 profiles and pretends to be 20 different people. I mean, how can you know? And uh, I think many people, yeah, this, this became a bit of a sport during the pandemic with some people. And we, I learned just about one shocking case with people who had, uh, especially young girls who had, uh, or oh, what is the English term, is, is being anorexic, anorexia, is this the, the, the term? And they were basically offering these girls to help them. So there were these space groups where they can share, they want to be anorexic, they want to be extremely thin, and they, they meet up in groups where they advise each other on, um, you know, how, how can you manage your goal of losing another five kilo, even if you're super thin. So and encouraging each other to, to lose more and more weight, of course, which is ridiculously uh, unhealthy and extremely dangerous. And then some, uh, they call themselves, at least in the German scene, they call themselves Anna coaches. Uh, that's basically some young men taking the advantage and saying, I will supervise you and I will help you and I will coach you that you lose weight more easily. And uh, this is obviously an, an, a way of exploiting these girls, for instance. And first of all, they have to send images of themselves and then they will basically evaluate if they're thin enough and so on and so on. And this was maybe also, this uh, situation also got a little bit out of hand or even more out of hand in, in the pandemic. This is just one of these, I think, extremely dramatic uh, consequences of this just as you mentioned, you know, people had the need or they just want to be, which is entirely understandable, especially in a lockdown situation, you want to be in touch with some people and maybe you have to share some common interests and so on. And you overlook sometimes really that, yeah, first of all, you don't really know about anything about these people. And they have, in fact, never met these people in the physical world and they don't even know who they are. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. It's very interesting how public use of social media has become more pronounced under lockdown for obvious reasons. But I'm wondering if maybe this has given rise to more use of social media in the long run. For instance, I was just talking to a therapist recently about this, the fact that a lot of people are coming out of lockdown and do not want to come out of lockdown. There is a psychological phenomenon afoot where people are feeling either distressed about having to go out into the real world, not wanting to go out into the real world, not any of this because they're worried about getting COVID, but because they're uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm wondering if maybe social media has kicked in a even higher degree of online social dependence. I think so. I think this is the... Uh, back then there was this uh, this issue of FOMO, fear of missing out. So if you don't uh, 
if you don't leave your home, you might, you know, miss out of something. You you might miss something. This is before the the pandemic might have been a reason for many people to from time to time leave their home, even if yeah, if they were not so sure about themselves if they wanted to or not. But now during this long lockdown periods, much more you know, supposedly social events or cultural events have been moved online. And it seemed to a lot of people, basically you can also, basically the fear of missing out has been leveled down, I think. Yeah, so that means you can still participate a little bit in something, or at least you get the feeling that you participate a little bit in something when you're participating in some kind of an online event, of course, which is pretty much, or in many cases, quite uh, anonymous and you don't really interact, but it feels a little bit like you're, for instance, uh, people watch a movie together and some people can comment on it, and then you know, okay, not a living room, so not a sofa, people watching the same movie as I'm, so I'm, we, we are all watching the movie right now together. So, but it, what people, I think what a lot of people realize that it, it is entirely possible to stay at home and they notice that they actually like it and that they got stressed by uh, being among people before and they really got used to being a little bit more on their own and not leaving their home and got more comfortable. And uh, I also think that this has changed during the pandemic. I heard it also quite often and some therapists over here were saying this as well. It was really difficult and uh, it was interesting to read even in some business and, and uh, manager journals and stuff like this. That is a, a big problem in um, also in, in, the, in, the, in the work life of many people that they need to adapt to the idea or readapt to the idea that they need to go in or go back to their office and meet people in real life for meetings again because they got so used uh, used to having their online meetings and so on and uh, yeah so this it was a real re-adaptation issue to being out again among people and in, in germany now the corona numbers are really 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 high so it's extremely traumatic time right now and the old our virologists are advising that we should consider another lockdown basically right now and this makes it feel so it feels a little bit if you follow the advice of the scientists that you're actually health wise on the safer side if you actually stay at home of course mentally given your mental health this might not be the case but it sounds like your physical health is endangered if you're actually among people and obviously this has consequences also for you mental health so it is a quite contradictory situation right now we're seeing where science around lockdown is coming up against even online let's say social media scientists they're not really scientists but there are people who take a great interest in trying to use their undergraduate training in statistics to crunch numbers and what seems clear to me, even I've spoken to some of the great Barrington declarants on the show, is that there's very little subtlety allowed for with social media. If you say, I don't think lockdowns are the best way to handle this, you're accused of wanting to kill everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's not what, let's say, the great Barrington declarants are saying. 
If you mm. say, I don't think children should get the vaccine, again, you're trying to say <laughs> people should die of COVID, which is not the same thing. And I've noticed that social media wipes away any design for human subtlety that we have when we're talking like right now. Yeah. Our tone and our voice commit certain ideas in a lighter or a heavier way, depending on how they're announced. The same way for scientific information and the way we can read a study and say, look, uh, if you see the numbers of people being vaccinated across the world, there is no correlation between the rate of vaccine and coronavirus rates. Now, there are reasons for that, perhaps, but if you even say that sentence that I just said, there are people who will block you from their Facebook page. And I'm wondering what social media has done in terms, especially since February of 2020, what has happened such that people can less and less disagree agreeably. Everything is now, Joaquim, you're trying to murder my grandmother. I disagree with you. You're a mass murderer. Hitler's name comes up an awful lot as well. You know, So you can't actually just disagree with someone. Then you become Hitler, Stalin, name your dictator, and no one talks about the issues. Totally. It's extremely interesting because I was uh, actually invited to talk about similar issues on, I have to think this was on Tuesday, basically. And uh, so there were key, three keynotes about this issue. So I talked about the situation on YouTube and what I learned from, from YouTube. And the, the first person speaking was a journalist who founded a think tank uh, dealing with political disinformation and so on. And he, so then we had a discussion uh, and, and the, the second person was, I think, a professional fact checker person working for one of these fact checking organizations. Anyway, so I think I learned a lot from this discussion because the, the, the first guy, the, the uh, think tank guy said, to him, it's, it seems that uh, he was actually making, um, he compared social media technologies and platforms to the issue of um, the invention of x-rays, basically, when we discovered the, and he said, which I found a really interesting example, at the beginning, the people found it extremely entertaining and great to, to do these, you know, x-ray images of your, of your hands, and they even had parties and so on where people were x-raying each other and so machines specifically designed for x-raying your children you know to basically document their development through through x-rays has already been something in development or on the market and so on and it took quite a long time until people realized actually if you expose yourself to x-rays too many times you, you become radiated and you get cancer and you will eventually get really sick and you will die yeah but of course, it took a long time. And he compared it to the development of social media platforms at the beginning. And actually, you know, on a, on a timeline, we're still quite at the beginning with these all different new social media technologies are popping up. I think at the beginning, we are all used it for different things. People really seem to like it. And more and more people get on the platforms. The first platforms are already dying off things like, um, uh, what is it called? MySpace, for instance, was one of these platforms that died out, which was really uh, sort of, um, popular in the beginning. And his point of view was, I think we are now at the, 
the stage where we're re realizing that the using the X-ray technology for our amusement is really, really harmful and dangerous. <laughs> and the teachers compared it to our, you know, democracy and discussion culture. And I think this is what you're aiming now with, at with your question, because I totally, I would also, I have decided I will never participate in a, or at least extremely rarely in some kind of a political discussion on, uh, on social media channels because it's just entirely useless. And I also observed you will end up being uh, either uh, harassed or they will just uh, verbally abuse you or whatever, something like this. So will, you will not, it is that uh, the likelihood that you have a good, interesting discussion and, and argument is extremely, yeah, this is extremely small. This is also my observation. Maybe this is really the wrong medium to discuss important things publicly because it is just an economy of attention. You have to be really loud. It seems to be the case that many of the algorithms um, basically, um, and I'm looking for the, for the English term, you will get rewarded for being particularly loud or aggressive or something like that. And this is, this is amplified and rewarded by, by the algorithms. And if you're making a difficult argument, the likelihood that, that you will move down in, in the search history or in the recommendations and so on is quite high. Because it's, you know, it seems to be that it's, uh, things are favored that are easy to understand, that are really loud, that is very clear point of view, you say either, no, it's completely wrong, or yes, we have to do it by any means. Anything in the middle will just fall down. And the things in the middle are exactly the things that we need to, to get the problem fixed and to have the discussion going. So I basically, I can just confirm what you're saying. I, it's also my observation and my, uh, yeah, my impression that it's, it's almost impossible to have any interesting, a fruitful discussions in a, in a, on, on uh, yeah, many social media channels, especially when you look at something like um, TikTok, for instance, which has become an extremely powerful and influential medium uh, among a really young target audience. It has now already, it, it already has more than 1 billion users worldwide in the uh, outside of China. Of course, China, they have a different different platforms which are regulated by the, by the Chinese state and so on. And, and there you can, you simply cannot do it. The, the, the platform even prohibits it. You have to make something extremely short and, and colorful and loud. Otherwise you will, <laughs> it's not even possible. So. Well, you remember in 2018, uh, one of the internet gurus, Jared Lanier, he mm -hmm. spoke about the outrage that is caused by social media. And mm -hmm. he said that social media is quite toxic to us. Yeah. And I'm wondering if disinformation and fake news doesn't feed into that, because what fake news does more often than real news, because it's so outrageous, it gets people stirred up. They get angry they can get extremely angry because fake news is limitless. Totally. I mean, many of the people also more from a psychological angel are saying what, it, that, what you really need to do if you want to get people's attention, you, you need to get them with something emotional, you know, something that 
And especially negative emotions apparently work better than positive um, emotions because then you feel a need to react. So you want to express your anger or something like that. You engage more with the content uh, when you're angry because then you're quite likely to, to, to post the content as well or, or react in a comment or forward it to your friends and say, look, this is so terrible and outrageous and you have to see that. And if you just see, for instance, a, a peaceful, nice uh, image or something like that, you would just leave uh, something like a like there. So the, it seems to be the case from a psychological point of view, if you want to um, get a social media engagement, it is wise to use negative uh, emotions. And this is why, and then back then, uh, I don't really, not really know when it started, I think in the, 2016, 17, or even later, some people also noticed that if they can, that was actually in the Trump election, when, uh, when, when Trump, when the election go, was going on, whether Trump was about to become president or not, that must have been around that time. And some people from extreme, completely different countries, they were not even based in the US, and they were completely not interested in, in US politics, noticed if they just post enough content on uh, on these issues and and uh, we're making up the most outrageous news stories which are of course totally out of reality if there were no uh, no basis in reality for this kind of stories that they wrote whatsoever nonetheless the people clicked on it and then they monetized the the, the content basically and they realized that it's by clickbaiting and so on they can just make a living and this is why one of the reasons, and apparently there was a village in, I don't, can't remember the country, I think it was Albania or somewhere in, in Eastern Europe, where a lot of people got together and they noticed, hey, we can make a lot of money if we get a lot of this kind of outrageous fake stories online. And this is why it, it grew so strongly and then they were favored by the algorithms and so on. And suddenly you had this massive amount of fake news, especially about Hillary and so on, out there, but this was actually posted not even from also, of course, from the enemies. They also pay, uh, published a lot of the um, of the disinformation, no doubt, for political reasons. But apparently, there were also other players which were not politically interested at all. They just made it for money. They're saying, okay, this is a uh, an option for us to make a living or at least earn a decent amount of money, and we don't care about the consequences, even if we. Um, intoxicate the whole, uh, I don't know, communication uh, system or the, the information ecology of the people worldwide, but we will make some money and we will do it. And uh, it took really long until people found out that something really strange was going on and then it was too late. They tried, you know, players like Google and so on apparently tried to fix it, but uh, it is, once it's out there on the web, it's very difficult to take it back. The web doesn't forget. And uh, yeah, this was some of the early learnings why I think uh, this, I really like the myth, uh, uh, this uh, metaphor that this, the journalist used with the X-ray technology. Now we're in the stage where we realize actually it's really harmful for, if we rely too much on these technologies for our amusement specifically, or we now start to realize what the consequences are. And it's not an innocent technology, but it has a lot of 
maybe unintended side effects that we finally start to realize that there are, something like that. Well, you discuss some of your work in an article entitled Rezzo in German Climate Change Policy and the influence of networked expertise on YouTube and beyond. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering about this because you discussed this right before the European election. Uh, you analyze a period before the European election in May 2019, a YouTube video entitled The Destruction of the CDU, which caused quite a big political controversy in Germany. Could you discuss what happened with this? Yes, okay. So this was an issue that popped up right before the, the German election. One guy who was really popular among young people because normally he posted funny videos about, you know, internet memes and music related things and that. So he was not a political player at all. Nonetheless, the guy is... Uh, I think he's basically a um, computer scientist by training. So he studied at the university. I think he's quite a, quite a clever guy and so on. And he wanted to make a, a statement. He was really unhappy how the, the German government, especially the, uh, the conservative party was not doing enough to react to basically the looming issue of climate change. And he was extremely upset and unhappy that uh, the voice of the scientists was not heard by the politicians. So he made a very long video, which was an hour long, and half an hour of this video was just explaining the issue of climate change, basically to his followers, you know, young people. He was saying nothing new at all. He was just basically, um, yeah, telling the young people in his own youthful vernacular, extremely emotional, language about what the issue is. The scientists are saying, if we don't do that, then we will be in this situation and there will be various crises coming along related to migration, starvation, biodiversity, and so on and so on. And if you watch it, you know, in, in such a compressed version, scientifically, it's all correct. It has been approved and checked by scientists working on the issue saying there's nothing wrong with what he's saying. In the video, he even, Everything that he talks about is in the video, he, uh, he shows the sources of the materials that he refers to, it's all scientific documents, but he translates it into a language that young people can understand. And then he was basically heavily attacking the, the conservative party in Germany that they need to especially listen to the voice of the scientists and take action. So this was, pretty big deal of the video. And, and he was uh, also mentioning a couple of issues, but this was the main part. The reaction by the politicians, because the guy looks a bit punky, you know, he has blue hair and so on, and he's just wearing a hoodie and so on. So he's not looking like an anchorman of, <laughs> of a, a TV news station or something like that. So the people from the conservative government saying, ah, this is just some internet guy peddling fake news about our party and so on. And also the, the journalists of the established media system also didn't really know how to deal with this guy and saying, hmm. nonetheless, young people really liked it and it really went viral, this video. The video turned out to be the most watched video in Germany in the year 2019. So it had 16 million views, which is, really a lot in, in the German system. And because many of the uh, 
conservative politicians basically made a fun made fun of him he networked with a lot of real influencers from you know the beauty scene and the music scene and so on and they made a video together basically blackmailing the, the government if you're not listening to the advice of the climate scientists on on the issue of climate change we will not vote for you anymore at all we vote for different parties and suddenly they had the attention because this video reached again many, 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 many million people, all the followers of these different influencers that were involved. And these are exactly the people that the, the main political parties don't reach anymore because they don't know how. They also tried it with influencers, but this is not something that is going to work. This worked. So everybody knew the position of Rezo and you also other influencers. And then they got some scientists in the boat and so on. And eventually this. The, the discussion went on and went on. And eventually, at some point, the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, back then, uh, was asked in a TV interview uh, about the video. And then he, she said, which I thought was just amazing, uh, in fact, he has, a, he has a cause, he has a reason, and he's actually right, we didn't do enough. So, you know, there was just basically one guy making a YouTube video saying, something goes extremely wrong and eventually after a long cascade of things happening and a lot of support from different people the chancellor needs to react to this video saying in fact uh, you're right we didn't do enough and i promise that we now have a, a climate cabinet and, and we are working on, on a new body which is going to take care of it and so on but this opened the door for the whole uh, yeah political and and uh, science-related uh, things happening on YouTube, at least in the German scene, because then in 2020, when the first lockdown happened, there was somebody from the network who was already involved in, in a resource story because she is a scientist, but she got popular as a YouTube scientist. She's running a channel that's called My Lab. She's a, a chemist basically by training, but now also really popular science YouTuber and, and science journalist these days. But this is not where she came from. She really comes from, she's a bench scientist, basically. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, she was making a video very much in the style of Rezo, maybe a little more, a little bit more sober, you know, a little bit less angry, but also quite emotionally explaining that, you know, this is the protections, this is how virologists and epidemiologists and so on, how they use the data, and these are the protections. And uh, I tell you this, we're just at the very start of the pandemic and we all have to realize that this is not going to be over in, in a couple of weeks time. This is going to take long un until the situation normalizes again, but a lot of things need to happen and we need to develop vaccines now and, and so on. And she explained this in a language that could be understood by everybody without the expertise in science as well. Yeah, so this was really good work of doing you know, public science communication. It was extremely interesting what happened after that because uh, she and basically Christian Drosten, which is the main uh, virologist in Germany who really got popular through a, a podcast where he was talking about, he's really an expert on, on the coronavirus. Um, 
he, he was doing uh, almost weekly podcasts about what they learned, what the virologists learned, what the scientists learned about the virus and about the situation in Germany. And this podcast was also, it not only came in the radio and on the web and so on, but you could also basically watch or listen to all episodes on YouTube. And Christian Drosten and the MyLab person, they both got awarded the German I forgot what it's called, the Bundesverdienstkreuz. This is the highest, basically, honor that the government can give to a, a, some, some civil person. And just if you compare from the, the case with uh, this YouTuber talking about science on, on YouTube, got the highest honor by the government that the, that the state can give out, basically. And Rizzo, just doing something quite similar a year ago, he was just ridiculed by all the politicians. So it, the situation has really extremely changed within just a one year. And of course, the um, coronavirus pandemic was a, was a major driver of the, how the perception changed and, and the necessity of being, yeah, of doing this science communication on, on YouTube, basically. And what do you see then for the future? You were talking about TikTok earlier, and obviously it's the latest, hot, hottest cultural knickknack that people refer to but these are platforms that are dominated by gen generation z they have a certain type of what you refer to i believe as having a, a vernacular creativity at the same time there seems to be a problem with how we can productively interface with social media without as i mentioned earlier people being lost within an entirely an entirely online social media presence for instance is it healthy that people spend eight hours a day on social media and don't see humans what are what are the next steps do you think towards maybe a post-lockdown checklist of what we can do even people listening to this podcast for many of us who've had to depend on social media, even for our work or for survival, not going crazy, people who were alone during lockdown, that was their only social interaction and so forth. Well, of course, it's impossible to predict. But of course, I see a, a massive diversification of, of platforms. There will be more and more platforms coming in the European context. We are also learning Maybe you heard of the, the issue of Francis Haugen and Facebook, and she was now just talking um, with the European Parliament about this issue. And there's something going on, which is a discussion about the Digital Markets and the Digital Services Act, which is going to be one uh, measure of regulating the whole social media problems, at least in a, a European Union uh, environment. So things will change and a lot of people predict that there will also a public sector version of the of social media and the internet. I'm not so sure because I see problems with creativity and monetization because uh, YouTube is so popular with many creators because they can make a living through advertisement and, and other ways of monetizing the content. And I'm not so sure how this would work on the public sector version because this for instance should be free of advertisement ideally free of 
algorithmic manipulation, if this is possible at all. I don't know, but this is the vision of a lot of people. At the same time, observing that more and more of these what communication scholars are calling dark platforms are popping up, you know, things like BitChute and Parler and so on, platforms which are entirely unregulated and uh, which basically see it as a badge of honor if you're blocked from YouTube and they're collecting all these people and saying, look, this is the area where you find real uh, free, free speech. And this is the, because people are blocked, this is basically the proof that uh, a conspiracy is going on and so on. So you find much more darker corners and it's, it's actually really, if you go there, it's really unpleasant to watch videos on these platforms because you'll find all kinds of really gruesome uh, bad bad things happening there. And of course, it diversifies also by age. So young people are rather on, for instance, all of my students that I talk with, their Instagram is really, really an important platform for them for whatever reason. I, I don't use it, I don't like it, but uh, yeah, so this already changes and younger people yeah seem to prefer TikTok and of course there are many many more platforms coming I totally agree that it's uh, probably not healthy if you spend too much time on on your platforms on the other hand these platforms are and the Facebook papers also showed this but also research or independent research uh, showed this on, on different platforms that by the by design, many of these platforms think about, you know, basically taking uh, that many of these platforms were hiring people from the, I don't know, lottery industries and so on, that did actual work, uh, work and research on how to make people dependent, how, how can we really make them addicted to our platform so they spend as much time as possible. So for instance, I think Snapchat, who has a function saying, or at least some platforms had this, uh, that your content is only there for a certain amount of time. So you're always a little bit in a hurry if you want to see what other people have posted or your friends. So that means it, it makes it really dramatic for you if you take the mobile phone of a kid and this kid cannot access the content of his or her friends for some term, it might disappear already. So the kids are always, you know, under pressure to follow up what is happening. Otherwise, it's too late. Which I think is also quite a, putting quite a pressure on these on these kids. And I think we will find more of this. It might, on the one hand, some people might become more and more addicted and affected by this kind of stuff. On the other hand, there will also be more and more people who are completely fed up with what is happening in the social media world and they will use these platforms less and less. So, and of course these people also will live in completely different realities at some point, I think, so. Well, it's also something that, that I thought about while I was reading one of your studies, I kept thinking, well, is there a demographic, aside from politics or class, but is there a demographic of people who spend, let's say, more time yeah. on social media who are more dependent and addicted to social media? Are they the ones disseminating the fake news? Are they the perfect targets for fake news? Whereas someone like myself, I go on, I see a news, I can sort of recognize what's real, what's fake pretty easily. 
I also am very critical of mainstream media, extremely so, because a lot of what CNN and Forbes puts out is paid news. It's not even fake news. They are being paid. Have you noticed, CNN, how many yacht stories, not just little yachts, super yacht stories. There's a super yacht story every week on CNN. And we know that people who own super yachts that are the size of cruise liners are less than 1% of the population. They're probably 0.01% of the population. So I'm just wondering if the people who are more addicted to social media would be the perfect target for fake news. Hence, those are the ones spreading it. Well, it's difficult to say. I would, I would not dare to say this is the case or this is not the case because I simply don't know. The, the, this also the, from an empirical research point of view, it is extremely contradictory, these findings that exist because some, some studies have found that, for instance, it's uh, especially a lot of old people who don't use you know, social media a lot. And if they just use it from time to time to communicate with their uh, distant families and so on, and if something pops up which seems outrageous to them, they will immediately share it. And these are people uh, which are not online a huge amount of time. Maybe they got online more and more during the pandemic and maybe also become a little bit more dependent. But to be honest, we simply don't know. And uh, of course, we can speculate and say, yeah, it's quite likely that these people who uh, get drawn into some kind of radicalization bubbles and they do at some point, they don't do anything else but sharing, reading and sharing this information, falling, you know, moving deeper and deeper into their bubbles and echo chambers and so on. But the, from the research point of view, at least from the, from the papers, from, from the studies that I know, this is hotly debated. The evidence is not very clear. So we cannot say clearly, yes, this is the case, or we can also not say, no, this is not the case at all. So it seems to be, basically from my point of view, we don't know. We simply need more research. And as more of this, more and more of this is also happening on, let's say, at least in the German case, on end-to-end -end encrypted messages like uh, Telegram, for instance, we cannot do any research anymore because there's, it's extremely difficult, almost impossible to get the data of what is happening there. You can only participate as a non, or maybe also as a participant observer doing an ethnography, but of course you still have any, you don't have any idea about reception and so on. So we, we simply, uh, yeah, walking in the dark. We don't know from my point of view and uh, the studies that are published, at least the ones that I read, uh, come up with quite contradictive conclusions. So to be honest, I don't know.